Following the withdrawal of American forces in Afghanistan, South Florida is becoming a new safe haven for Afghan refugees. However, new legislation and funding cuts have officials scrambling to accommodate the influx of Afghan evacuees. And unfortunately, there's also a stigma against people who are refugees. From Florida Atlantic University's Boca Raton campus, I'm Carrie Zebel. And I'm Jacob Brown with South Florida Journal for the week of November 19th, 2021. Also this week, Palm Beach County Schools tried lifting their mask requirement on their own terms after an order from the Florida Board of Education. Now, the mandate has ended on a state judge's terms. So it is a thing that it's like scary to think that people don't want to have masks when it could help their kids and they think that it's like restricting their freedom. We'll have these stories and more on this week's South Florida Journal. But first, from Boca Raton, Tyler Childress says some of the other stories making South Florida headlines this week. Thank you, Jacob. The Army Corps of Engineers could be redirecting its controversial discharges from Lake Okeechobee in an effort to redress environmental damage to the Everglades and coastal areas. Aliyah Fisher has details of a federal plan announced on Tuesday. Though the court might have good intentions, critics are already voicing objections. Engineers are proposing to reduce lake drainage to the Atlantic Ocean while increasing water flows to the Everglades. But Republican Congressman Brian Mast, whose Treasure Coast constituents have experienced some of the worst toxic algae from lake discharges, says the new plan still favors sugar farmers. And scientists cite agricultural runoff as a key issue. Dr. William Lauda, a researcher with Florida Atlantic University's Environmental Sciences Program, monitors algal blooms in Lake Okeechobee. He's seen the impacts of farming and other human activity. The one thing that man can do is stop pollution, nutrient pollution, nitrogen and phosphorus, because algae need three things. They need light, they need nutrients, and they need the correct temperature. Lauda adds that early studies indicate algal blooms could have serious health impacts, including liver problems and Alzheimer's disease. The new federal plan is not yet final. The Army Corps plans to release an impact statement and invite public comment. For South Florida Journal, I'm Aaliyah Fisher. With hurricane season almost behind them, residents along coastal areas of Palm Beach and Broward counties have been confronting a water emergency of another sort. It's the season known as King Tides, when the sun, moon, and earth align, creating above normal tides. Some areas began experiencing street flooding in September, but occurrences have been more intense this month, posing a threat to local sea life. Dylan Hobbs Fernie has the story. The tides in South Florida beaches are rising high once again, as king tides return. These higher tides can affect South Florida through tidal flooding, and Colin Polsky, the director of FAU Center of Environmental Studies, says the higher tides can bypass anti-flooding mechanisms of storm drains. The water from the ocean or the river comes up through the storm drains and enters the street. King tides can also impact local sea life in South Florida like sea turtles and their nests. Jeanette Weinhaken, a professor of biological sciences at Florida Atlantic University, says nests laid low on the beach are at the greatest risk. You don't think about sea turtle eggs breathing, but they do. The embryos do need oxygen. And if the spaces between sand grains or between eggs fills with seawater rather than with air, the embryos can die. South Floridians may not feel the difference in the moon's pull, but can feel its impact through king tides and the damage done to the environment around them. For South Florida Journal, I'm Dylan Hobbs-Fernie.
Environmentalists are warning that a Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission proposal could push the endangered Goliath grouper species to extinction. Last month, the board tentatively approved a limited season to catch and harvest juvenile grouper, but the plan has raised concerns about impacts on the species' population and marine wildlife. With more on the story, here's Brandon Baring. After 30 years of near silence on the fish, the proposal would establish a three-month season for catching and harvesting as many as 200 Goliath grouper. It would prohibit fishing along the coast of South Florida from Martin County through the Keys. Still, divers like Shana Phelan, co-owner of Pier Vita Divers on Singer Island, have concerns over the new proposal. The aggregations over the last several years have been declining, and this year in particular was probably one of the worst as far as the number of adults. While Phelan sharply questions the proposal, Florida Atlantic University research professor Matt Ajamian has mixed feelings about it. It's good to see that the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission is responding to concerns of multiple parties. On the other hand, it's somewhat disappointing. This species has had a complicated history. It was overexploited many decades ago. FWC will develop recommendations after which commissioners will hold a final vote. If approved, the first Goliath grouper season would begin in March of 2023. For South Florida Journal, I'm Brandon Barry. This week has brought changes in government for two South Florida counties. Broward and Palm Beach County commissioners elected a new mayor and vice mayor at their meetings on Tuesday. In Palm Beach, Robert Weinroth will now serve as mayor with Greg Weiss as vice mayor. After being appointed by his colleagues, Weinroth mentioned multiple issues that he once addressed. We are going to have a lot of challenges ahead of us going forward this year, obviously. Mental health is not going away. Food insecurity is something that we're going to have to get our hands around. It's not going away. The housing scarcity is an issue that we continually talk about. And I think as we talked about the Ag Reserve, we understand the pressures that are on us to try and balance what is going on in the Ag Reserve with our need to have affordable, decent housing. In Broward County, Michael Udeem will take over as mayor, with Lamar Fisher being selected as vice mayor. In his first press conference as mayor, Udeem not only wanted to focus on physical and mental health, but also employment and transportation, which were affected by the pandemic. On an individual level, jobs in the employment picture in Broward will be in focus as the personal finances of our residents and visitors have been affected in many different ways during the pandemic. With respect to affordable housing, transportation, all of these things are going to be key issues that we'll look for through the next year. While the position of mayor is mainly ceremonial, both Weinroth and Udine are set to provide leadership on a variety of issues. Fort Lauderdale City Commissioners have approved a plan to upgrade the city's skyline, though debate over the concept has continued to gain momentum. Last month, commissioners gave the go-ahead to a new $400 million high-rise development at the site of the old Searstown Shopping Center. However, Mayor Dean Trantalis contends that the developer, RK Centers, hasn't accounted for possible negative impacts to the area. Bria Smith has the details. Some may view the old Searstown site as a ghost town. Others consider that part of Sunrise Boulevard as their hometown and worry about added stress on the city's environment, including traffic. Yet FAU urban and regional planning professor Jesse Saginaw says this criticism might be hasty. To some extent, it's hard to say that there will be more traffic and directly attribute that to this project. The thing is, is that a lot of people that use Sunrise could be going somewhere else. 
At a meeting in September, RK Center's attorney Courtney Crush told Fort Lauderdale commissioners that the project had been designed to minimize congestion. But for Mayor Dean Trantalis, increased traffic is only one concern. He also says plans for amenities like shopping are still sketchy. If you don't have a grocery store, how are you going to get to the grocery store? You're going to have to get in your car. Well, that kind of defeats the purpose of urban living. Soon, Trantalis will see whether his worries are validated. The three-part Searstown project begins next month with construction of a 12-story hotel. For South Florida Journal, I'm Bria Smith. South Florida's housing market has exploded in recent years, leaving difficult decisions for potential homeowners. As bidding wars and cash offers overwhelm the market, renting might seem to be a useful alternative. But as Jamie Allen reports, experts say even renters should think carefully before making any decisions. Skyrocketing home prices in the Tri-County area have put potential homeowners in a precarious situation. According to Zillow, 74 Miami homes sold for at least $500,000, more than the initial asking price at the end of July. Miami real estate attorney Michelle White has seen the volatile South Florida housing market firsthand. The property had actually been listed before. It was listed last year in October, and the listing price was $23 million. Now it's $36 million, and it's less than a year later. With exorbitant prices, experts advise patience and caution. Ken Johnson, professor of business at Florida Atlantic University, says renting might be smarter right now, but only if the choice is made wisely. Renting is a very viable option, but I would encourage all people to rent and reinvest if you are going to rent. Take those monies, or as much as you can, of those monies that you would have spent on homeownership, the down payment, the taxes that you would pay for the year, the insurance, all those things that you would have paid on homeownership, take that and invest it. As the market remains expensive, potential homeowners may need to wait it out or foot the bill. For South Florida Journal, I'm Jamie Allen. Those are some of the stories we've been following on this week's South Florida Journal. I'm Tyler Childress. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Carrie Zebel. And I'm Jacob Brown. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at SoFloJournal. Just ahead... Following the withdrawal of American forces in Afghanistan, South Florida is becoming a new safe haven for Afghan refugees. However, new legislation and funding cuts have officials scrambling to accommodate the influx of Afghan evacuees. But first, Palm Beach County schools made headlines last month when they announced their intention to lift their mask mandate once certain benchmarks were met. Coming on the heels of the Florida Board of Education's order to end the requirement, the new plan led some critics to wonder whether schools were trying to save face while avoiding state sanctions. If so, a Florida magistrate denied that opportunity early this month. Administrative hearings judge Brian A. Newman ruled that Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade, and other school districts had failed to prove that the state's health department exceeded its authority by allowing students' parents to opt out of mask mandates. Palm Beach County Schools responded to the ruling by moving to a maskless option by November 8th, a week earlier than initially announced. Broward and Miami-Dade made similar changes by November 9th. All of this had us scrambling to keep up with events. South Florida Journal's Catherine Ambrosio Villegas has been covering the story since early last month, 
when Palm Beach County only envisioned lifting its mask mandate by December. This week, Catherine sat down with Justin Abney Thomas. She explained the district's decision process and how it was viewed before the judge's ruling. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. You are very welcome. So fill me in on the background of Palm Beach County Schools mass mandate and how the district worked through this contentious issue. Palm Beach County Schools, alongside eight school districts in Florida, decided to implement a mass mandate during the first weeks back to in-person classes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order to ensure that parents had the freedom to choose if they wanted to send their children with or without a face mask. The Florida Department of Education ruled to partially defund Palm Beach County Schools and the eight other school districts that defied the governor's order. This includes school board members and superintendent salaries. In addition, they said they would reduce overall funding to the counties that received federal grants to cover the fines. Due to the rise of students quarantining in just the first week back to school, many of these counties decided to implement a mask mandate for everyone's safety, despite facing retribution from the governor. Yet, recently, some have already loosened up on their mask policies, Palm Beach County Schools being one of them. When I spoke with Palm Beach County parent Beth Pickman late last month, the district had just announced its intention to lift the mask mandate sometime in November or December once certain conditions had been met. Pickman didn't expect the change to be made as soon as last week. She certainly wasn't in any hurry to have the mandate lifted. But Pickman probably isn't pleased with the district's move as it fails to meet one of her conditions. I feel that vaccines should be mandated for the kids because we get all kinds of vaccines before we're allowed to go to school. We get chicken pox, we get measles, we get rubella. My daughter, when she changed district, had to get a tetanus shot because she hadn't had one. So why is it okay to mandate all those vaccines and not mandate the COVID vaccine? Pickman says that before entering school, children are required to have all kinds of vaccines to be able to start the school year. Therefore, just like all other vaccines are required in school, the COVID-19 vaccine should not be the exception, she says. Interesting. Prior to the judge's ruling on November 2nd, one of the district's criteria for lifting the mandate was that the COVID positivity rate remained below 8% for four consecutive weeks. What were some of the district's other conditions? Some of the other conditions needed to be met is having vaccines available for children 5 and up. As of November 2nd of this year, the Food and Drug Administration gave the final approval on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, making it available for kids 5 to 11. Another condition that needed to be met is having the average weekly number of new cases in the county ultimately stay below 50 per 100,000 residents. That is about 750 cases overall for about four consecutive weeks. For the week of October 22nd to 28th, there was approximately 59 cases per 100,000. But even with the mask mandate being lifted, Palm Beach County schools are still permitting students' parents to opt out. And what do Palm Beach County teachers think of lifting the mandate? When I spoke with Palm Beach County substitute teacher Jacqueline Bam late last month, we knew the district was likely to be lifting the mandate sometime in November or December. And this seemed a long way off. Yet by the time of our interview, Bam already had serious questions about the feasibility of the district's plans. I don't know, you just never know with parents because parents 
lot of parents, especially in Florida, don't want to vaccinate their kids or they'll lie about it if they do and they don't even want to wear masks. Some parents, when it was required to wear masks, took their kids out and put them in virtual schools. So it is a thing that it's like scary to think that people don't want to have masks when it could help their kids and they think that it's like restricting their freedom. It's just for basic safety of them and everybody around them. Bam says that children do not really know personal space. Hence, if a child is sick, they will most likely spread it to the class and teacher. So what are school board members' thoughts on the lifting of the mask mandate in public schools? Some board members have definitely urged for caution with the mask mandate lifting. School districts agree that the safety of the students and staff in schools is their top priority, and if the COVID-19 situation were to worsen, they would reinstate the mask mandate. Dr. Deborah Robinson, a retired physician, represents District 7 on the Palm Beach County School Board. While she's been a critic of the mask mandate because children tend to be less infectious, she's still concerned about the children going home and affecting high-risk family members. When she spoke with me late last month, Dr. Robinson was already suggesting mitigation measures if the district planned to lift the mask mandate. When we do lift the mask mandate, we still have to monitor. And what I'm hoping is that we'll be able to use some of the federal funds related to COVID to buy some of these uh, machines like you might see in urgent care centers where they could do rapid tests for flu and for COVID and some other respiratory diseases so that we can have them in the schools, in the nurses' clinic, so that if you're, you know, you've got a fever, cough, sneeze, whatever you have, then you go to the nurse. She can test you while you're waiting for your mom or dad to come pick you up. Then tell, you know, say this is what Johnny has because it becomes really important when Johnny goes home because then there's adults in his life that he might infect with whatever this is, and whatever it is, we need to make sure that they get the appropriate treatment. So the work is not done when the mask mandate is lifted. She says that some people who are vaccinated are loosening up on COVID-19 safety precautions and are not wearing their face mask. This scares and concerns her. How do medical experts feel about the lifting of Palm Beach County Schools mask mandate? I interviewed Dr. Amy Armada, a Boca Raton pediatrician, late last month. At that time, the district had just announced it would lift the mask mandate in late November or in early December. She didn't know the mandate would be lifted as soon as last week. Yet, even then, she was sharply critical of the district criteria. I think cases in the entire country would have to drop from 100,000 cases a day to 10,000 cases a day in the whole nation. Because this is not just, you know, Palm Beach County. We have to think of each other. We have to think of everyone. Because people travel. We can't stop people from traveling. It's about to be Thanksgiving. And I'm pretty sure people are going to travel all over the place to see their family. So it's not just Palm Beach County. It's not even just the United States. It's the whole world experiencing this. So... For me, it would have to not be just Palm Beach County. It would have to be everyone. And it would have to be like the United States dropping from 100,000 to 10,000. It would have to be the United States being at least 80% vaccinated and maybe like 80% of the children in the school vaccinated. 
Dr. Armada says she would feel much safer if there were stricter criteria in place. She also mentioned how schools need help because they are struggling to maintain safety precautions, like being six feet apart, and how teachers are risking their life, and they can't do much because they rely on the government for money. What are the chances we'll see further legal challenges to the state's sanctions against mass mandates in public schools? It's still possible we could see further challenges, but Bob Jarvis, a professor of constitutional law at Nova Southeastern Law School, told the Sun Sentinel he expects other challenges to be withdrawn. He doesn't think the most recent ruling is likely to be reversed. We will have to see how this issue plays out. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. You are very welcome. That was South Florida Journal's Catherine Ambrosio Vegas telling us about the lifting of mask mandates in Palm Beach County schools. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Carrie Zebel. And I'm Jacob Brown. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at SoFloJournal. For years, Florida has supported increasing numbers of refugees. However, South Florida is about to see one of the biggest influxes in recent history. Support services expect to at least double their usual caseload of families, with state officials anticipating the arrival of up to a thousand Afghan refugees in the coming weeks. This task will be even more difficult on the heels of recent funding cuts. South Florida Journal's Jillian Manning has been covering the story. This week, she sat down with Alex Velasquez and told him more. Thank you for joining us, Jillian. Thank you for having me. How many Afghan refugees are likely to arrive? So my sources on this vary. At a minimum, we'll see about 300 Afghan refugees. Most likely, we'll see upwards of 1,000. In fact, 10 families have already arrived in Tallahassee. How is Florida's intake of refugees going to be different from last year? In 2020, Miami-Dade County took in a total of six Afghan refugees, whereas Broward and Palm Beach County took in a total of zero. This is a stark contrast to the amount of Cuban refugees that Florida takes in every year. For example, in 2020 again, Miami-Dade County took in nearly 2,000 Cuban refugees, and that county takes in 41.6% of the entire state's immigrants. What kind of hurdles are incoming Afghan refugees likely to face? I spoke to Eunice Ismal, treasurer for Friends of Humanity International, a nonprofit organization that focuses primarily on humanitarian efforts. And he said the biggest obstacle is going to be housing. When refugees arrive, they receive about three months' worth of rental assistance. But at the end of the day, it's not enough, and they come to organizations such as Friends of Humanity for supplemental funds just so they can afford to live. You know, I think the biggest, biggest challenge is going to be the housing. Uh, what happened last time as well, and, and I suspect may happen this time, when w- w- the first place of housing that they are uh, given is not necessarily where they wind up, because many a times they are placed in, in, in localities and areas which these refugees are, are not quite uh, a good match. The social work professionals that I spoke to agree with Ismal. It's much easier to assimilate into a new culture and a new country when you're surrounded by people who are familiar with your own culture. So it also provides, you know, a better sense of community and it provides other resources that might be lacking. For example, if a refugee needs a ride to work, they might be more likely to find someone willing to carpool within a community that they're more familiar with. I understand that finding housing within a community is important. What obstacles might people face when trying to achieve that goal? 
I spoke to Juan Castro, the development manager for the International Rescue Committee, and he said that when they do receive large families, uh, between five and ten members, they often struggle to find housing that keeps them together. They try to keep them close in perhaps uh, nearby neighborhoods or even the same apartment units, but it's not always possible. He also said that they do sometimes have luck negotiating with landlords for better deals to make apartments affordable for refugees. While Castro said that some landlords are willing to make deals, others are not so willing. Danielle Grutten, an assistant professor for Florida Atlantic University's College of Social Work, said that oftentimes refugees are faced with stereotypes and other harmful prejudices. There's just this sense that people who are without housing at the moment are um, in some ways going to be dangerous to others or that they are dirty or that they are not responsible. And so, you know, who gets to have a rental is very subjective. And unfortunately, there's also um, a stigma against um, people who are refugees. So while the financial aspect of trying to find an apartment is difficult, there's also the social aspect as well. What about children who are arriving as refugees? Is it common for children to arrive without their families? While it's unlikely we'll see a large percentage of unaccompanied minors with this upcoming wave of Afghan refugees, volunteers are still preparing. Ismal said that Friends of Humanity is actually preparing foster parent classes. Morgan Cooley, an associate professor at Florida Atlantic University's College of Social Work, said that foster classes that are held by the state usually last about 32 hours um, in terms of the total training time, and people often drop out in the process. Um, so to me, like finding ways to like say, you know, like let's give everybody the skills that they need so that they can kind of digest it. And then when they, when they want to initiate the formal process, like here's like a pathway. Um, but a lot of that's not really quite how it works because a lot of times you have to like go through like, you know, background checks and house checks. So it's not always as easy as you think. 30 to 70 percent of individuals drop out of foster parent training or drop out after the first year of being a foster parent. So Cooley said that these longer, more casual classes, such as the ones that Friends of Humanity might be teaching, could be really helpful in the long run in terms of retaining foster parents. What can the community do to help families transition to life here in the United States? Several of the people I spoke to highlighted the importance of donating and donating beyond just money. Castro from the IRC said one thing that's gone up in demand is men's underwear, as people are arriving with quite literally nothing. He and Groton also pointed to the importance of furniture. When people are finally able to afford these apartments, they're empty. And the upfront costs of moving make it difficult to afford things like furniture. I've worked with people who maybe have been working for months, but because their expenses are still just going to be enough, they, it takes them that long just to save up enough extra money to make that first and last month's deposit, the security deposit and get themselves into housing that's not just going to be an empty, furnitureless room. Other day-to-day objects like pots and pans are also going to be really helpful. Thank you so much for explaining the situation to us. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. South Florida Journal's Jillian Manning telling us about the influx of Afghan refugees. You've been listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Carrie Zebel. And I'm Jacob Brown. South Florida Journal is a joint production of Dr. Kevin Petrick's broadcast and advanced broadcast journalism classes in FAU's School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. Hi, I'm Aaliyah Fisher. I'm Max Gritz. I'm Tyler Childress. And we are your South Florida Journal producers. Here's the rest of the crew. This is Justin Abney Thomas with Jacob Brown, Max Gritz, and Sebastian Languiday, and we are your assignment editors. 
Our writers are Brandon Fian, Carrie Zebel, Alex Velasquez, Jamie Allen, Tyler Childress, and me, Bria Smith. Our audio editors are Alex Velasquez, Brandon Fian, and Tyler Childress. But let's not forget our social media coordinators Alex Velasquez, Carrie Zebel, Bria Smith, and Jacob Brown. Stay connected and follow us on Instagram at SoFlow Journal. Thank you for tuning in and make sure to join us for the next South Florida Journal.